0: pause your word counts and enjoy. Hey everyone, we just wanted to let you know this is an amazing conversation, but it does cover some sensitive topics. Some of the things that this covers is abortion, grooming, and sexual assaults. So if you're driving with young children, or if you have some sensitivities, please check out the show notes before you proceed. I am so excited today to have a YA writer with us. We have Annie Cardy. Um, Her new novel, Red, is coming out, I believe, at the end of this month. Is it January 20th? Is that the uh, date, January 30th. Yeah. January 30th. So congratulations. We're thank so you. happy to have you. Yeah. Congratulations, Thanks. Annie. Yeah, thank you so much. So tell us
1: about you. How, how is your writing process going? How did you start writing? And how did you find your
2: agent? So the writing process has been very, very long. I was the kind of person who always loved writing. You know, when I was little, I would you know kind of tape paper together and call it a story. I like would invite friends over and like make them play writing games with me. And my oh mom, oh my had to, gosh, like, that's so she, cute. She had to it like must take have been me aside. Very popular. <laughs> oh yeah, super popular. My mom had to take me aside, and she was like, "Not everyone likes this." And I was oh. like, "What do you mean? <laughs> do you want to play like basketball or something?" So, so I went, you know, I went to college and was an English major. After that, I got my MFA in creative writing. Um, so very much kind of on that track for books. And for um for my my first novel, um I had kind of queried agents for that. We worked together for a little while. I parted we parted ways amicably. And kind of after that, I was querying again, uh, connected with my agent with another book. So we went on submission for that. It didn't ultimately get picked up, but you know, I was working with her, um, on the book that would become read and she was really enthusiastic about it, which was nice. And, um, so again, going through the whole submission process, um, was a lot, but it ended up working out kind of right in the end. And, um, yeah, I think from the, the, my, my writing side, um, I tend to be someone who who is more of a pantser, as you say, where I just kind of come at it with a vague idea, like plot happens, and I don't really know from chapter to chapter what's going to happen next. And so for me, a lot of the writing process is a kind of discovery process and getting to know the characters and hopefully finding the kind of the right decisions for that character to make in that time. And yeah, I always wish I knew like it had a beautiful
0: outline and could follow it exactly. But I don't know. I think we should put on a sticker plot happens. Yeah, right. I happens. was like, plot <laughs> happens. No matter what plot happens. It, it exactly. might not come out perfectly. <laughs> oh, but it's gonna, one way or another. Eventually. Oh my gosh, that's great. I love that. I like, I, this is image of you, the tiny you, like, come over to my house. We can play <laughs> writing games. And I think there's a bunch of uh, our listeners to be like, yeah, I would have done that. Yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah, we had all been at school together. <laughs> oh my, God, oh my gosh, if only,
1: wouldn't it have been amazing if you'd all gone to school together and the teachers oh. are
0: like, I don't know what happened to that class. Yeah, right. <laughs> And I was like, I always thought, like, I looked up to you as a writer and I was just like, that girl's got her act together. And anyway, such a pleasure. So this is your second process. Yes. How have they been different? Oh, I'm so- Between like the first book and the second book and the first agent and and the second agent.
2: So really like 10 years in between publication. So my first book, I I wrote- Kind of the first real draft of when i was getting my mfa it was like my thesis so after that again i started querying agents um i actually had submitted for um in new england there's the susan p bloom award and um it's group of kind of literary people um from various backgrounds librarians teachers agents publishers and they select like you know two to four or five manuscripts a year. and as the kind of the prize, you get to submit to to editors and kind of bypass the submissions process. So that was where my first book got picked up by Candlewick. And I had a great experience with them. Um, and I was able to connect with my agent kind of simultaneously because I was querying at the time as well. And yeah, I feel like now it feels like so long ago. I mean, even the, the marketing process was very different in that like Twitter was a kind of a thing but we didn't have Instagram. Like, you know, I had a blog that I blog at all the time. Um, And yeah, it feels like a very different sphere now in terms of the marketing and publicity. And yeah, for this time around, um, yeah, my my agent and I were just kind of on submission with it. You know, she had put together a list of editors she thought might be interested. We did a kind of like, you know, a a more uh, targeted round of submissions um and then so that my book deals with reproductive rights and kind of during submissions um roe v wade was um repealed so we had a big conversation about you know what that meant in terms of changes for the book and what that meant in terms of submissions and how editors might be feeling regarding the topic um and from there, we connected with my editor, who, you know, was really enthusiastic. And um, again, the book deals with not only reproductive rights, but also religion. And so it was, I was really lucky to find someone who um, was enthusiastic about dealing with kind of both of those aspects of it and um, looking at it in a, in a way that was nuanced and sensitive. And I've been, you know, really excited that the marketing team has felt Similarly, and they're excited about talking about it. So it's it's been really nice, especially for a book that I feel like has more kind of issues this time around to see the um, the enthusiasm from the publishing side. Well, it's tough to write fiction about real life issues that are happening
1: in real time, and you know they say the personal is political, the political is personal. In this case, you really show how everything can go sideways when it's really not your character's fault at all. And everyone is acting as if, well, I, I don't know, how much are we allowed to, like, at yep. what point is it a spoiler? Yeah.
0: Can you, <laughs> yeah, can you I give mean, like, our listeners just a quick summer overview? Yeah. And we'll, we'd love to hear your first page after that.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think my pitch for it is generally that it's a YA retel- retelling of The Scarlet Letter centered around um, abortion and grooming. And I think, you know, it's not really a spoiler in that in the, like the first couple chapters, the main character seeks an abortion. she's pregnant. And very soon after, she starts getting harassed because people in her community have found out that she has made this choice. Um, So the book deals with kind of her her reaction to that and her kind of finding empowerment personally, creatively, and she is, until she is able to kind of speak out in her community and, and inspire others to do so as well. Annie, would you read your first page? I am ready. Go for it. We have to drive to Maryland for the appointment. Mom got the earliest one available on a Saturday morning, so she could drive me there and home and still get to work for the afternoon shift. Also, I'm not supposed to eat or drink eight hours before the procedure, which Mom says will be easier in the morning than the afternoon. We can stop for breakfast on the way home, she tells me, if you're hungry. I don't know if I'll be hungry because I've never done this before. Neither has Mom, so she doesn't know exactly either. That's what we call it, though, the procedure. We don't call it what it is. It's like we're afraid to say the word, like it's a curse. Maybe it is. I know the kids and youth group would basically say as much. This morning, they're all at Ignite, the annual fall retreat, where they do team-building exercises and share testimonials at a retreat center in the mountains. I went last year when mom and I were new to Hawthorne. It felt good to have people take my hand and give me a hug and tell me they were glad I was there. I imagine them all there again today, playing games and praying and learning to trust each other. I remember Lily pulling me into a hug with Brie, and the weight of their arms around me felt like relief. Alden would be with them, encouraging them all to put their trust in each other and in God, because with that, they can accomplish anything. When I was there last year, I expected that kind of thing to sound cheesy or disingenuous, but it didn't. The way Alden said it, it sounded real.
1: Oh, gosh. I just realized hearing that again after reading the whole book, you packed so much. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank So you. much <laughs> foreshadowing into the first page. Can you talk about how you did that and if it was a conscious <laughs>
2: choice or just worked out? I think mostly it just worked out. I think a lot of this actually was um was there like very early in the draft and I think um like it was an idea I've been thinking about for a while so kind of going into it I was like okay I know the um you know, the the characters that I really wanted to foreground um, and I like the ideas I was going to be talking about. And I remember I think uh, in my previous writing group, um, when I was in my MFA program, um, someone had mentioned that the first either the first page or the first chapter was like a lesson for people in how to read your book. And I think I always take that with me in terms of like, okay, you, how do you set up this story so the reader can like engage either again, like even with just the very first page or at least the very first chapter as a way that they're going to like approach the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, trying to like fit this in there as like, this is what you're going to take with you on this journey.
1: Can you expand on this idea of the lessons the first page should teach? And do you think it's the same for every genre or for every topic? I don't know what's exactly
2: the same for every genre, but I do think that there's a lot to be said for like these big, broad approaches, whether it's like, you know, this character, the voice, the tone, like really hitting, um, kind of these, uh, these hints of what's to come. And again, whether that's, you know, the, the voice of the character, and we're really going to get into and follow this journey, um sprinkling in those, those other important people who are likely to meet or, or this sense of like, I am going on this particular journey, I have this like particular need, um, like in in my first page, you know, thinking about her, thinking about all these other kids, and they're praying, and she is thinking back to the retreat that she was at last year, um, which ends up being like a big part of the story that we flash back to later. You know, I mentioned her two friends from youth group who are you know very close to her. So, yeah, she's like trying to like set up those things as early as possible, so the reader isn't just like you know spending pages with like maybe setting that they don't need background information. And then, you know, you're like 20, 30 pages in before you find the other important character who is going to be with you for the rest of the story. But yeah, I feel like it's that advice was something that like I've started to really take to heart when I like either just start drafting for the first time or go back in revision and like, start to like pick out like, okay, what things have I missed that are in the rest of the book that need to be in at the very least in that first chapter. It's
1: just so interesting because you set these patterns and then invert them. So you've mm-hmm. set these patterns of this is this amazing connection she has with these people. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they all shun her. And, you know,
0: here's somebody who she thinks is telling the truth. And then she finds out later he very much isn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: you, yeah also, thank you.
0: Yeah. You also, it's so interesting because after reading the Scarlet Letter, like you can almost feel that like she's detached, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, like there's a detachment here, there is, it's almost like it's not happening, an emotional, you know, like otherworldly feeling, but also yeah. very, almost a New England Puritan feeling. And I, th- I yeah. and then you let us judge this situation, just like the Scarlet Letter, this, in this first page, we're judging, she should be doing this. Is this is a good. Has she thought this over? Is this a good idea? You know, and then we're inverting into the youth group and then we're inverting into Alden and like the Scarlet Letter is that she wears it. And it's so interesting. It's all there on a page. Oh, thank you. And I think for me,
2: especially that kind of, that little bit of distance, I wanted to connect with someone who's very young and they're kind of overwhelmed and they they never expected to be in this situation. They don't really know what they're doing, if they're doing is right, how's it going to end up. They're feeling kind of pressure in a variety of ways. Um, so again, like feeling like they're, they just want to, like, get through this situation and think that, you know, she, she's thinking that everything is going to go back to normal. And, of course, that's not the case because that's mm. the book. So, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that I'm connected.
1: I love her mom, by the way. Oh, thank you. I think she sets such a high bar for a mom who just has her daughter's back no matter what and still maintains a responsibility but still just makes sure she is okay without caving to all of the pressure Around them. Can you talk about the choices of how you made her that way?
0: Yeah, I
2: think um kind of initially I was like, okay, I want in in conceiving of the book, I was like, okay, first chapter, I want like Tess to basically be on her way to her appointment to get an abortion. And I was like, okay, who is going to be driving her? And I really did come up with her mom. I'm like, okay, she has she has someone to take her. She has like a guardian who is able to, to do this for her. And I wanted her mom to be someone who was like a fully developed rich character as well, who is both supportive of Tess and like loves her and wants to do anything for her, but also doesn't understand her in some ways. You know, I think Tess's mom doesn't really get why Tess wants to be part of this religious community. She she doesn't have that connection. Um, and I think that um, I wanted that kind of dynamic in that someone being like a really loving and good parent, but also being very different from their child and, you know, being overworked, being, having their own stress. And um, yeah, I'm probably also coming from watching a lot of Gilmore Girls for many years and having that good, like mo- mother-daughter relationship at the back of my mind.
1: Well, I think it's so great too, because you give your readers an image of what it could be like and an image of things that they could Not even know that they could expect from their parents. Mm -hmm. And I I just think that's lovely. Oh,
2: thank you. And I think it's something that I like, I see more of for parents who are like, I'm friends with and have you know, teenagers, young adults um, and have really nice relationships with their kids. And maybe it is more of like a generational thing as, you know, Gen Xers and millennials have children um, and are like emotionally available for their children in a way that maybe wasn't encouraged in previous generations. And I think it's something that either, in a lot of books, you either see like, you know, negative interactions with parents or parents who are very absent, um, which is also a real thing. But I want to test to have someone who, is both like very much in her corner and like loves her and cares for her and does still have a divide with her about this particular topic. Did you get any
1: pushback having the mom be a real character in YA? Because I know some people have said that you're not allowed to do that. Really? <laughs> Actually,
2: like, Thankfully, like nobody mentioned that. I think everybody was like very excited to see her mom be like a real person. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh-huh. I am
1: curious, you said that your agent was speaking with you about how editors are feeling about this, given everything happening in the news. Can you tell us a little bit about what those conversations were like and if it helped you pivot
2: editorially? Yeah. So in talking with my agent, you know, we were both feeling very raw about this, you know, and it was kind of conversations that we we had had prior to the repeal of Roe v. Wade, where we were saying, you know, obviously this is like a big topic, like, you know, looking at ahead at legislation that we thought might be coming. But I think we did want to both be sensitive to editors and then, you know, anyone else in, in the publishing house would be reading it, you know, considering that it's, it was a very sensitive time and people were having, you know, very personal reactions. But also I think both of us felt Very strongly about this kind of story being out in the world and also wanting to connect with readers, especially young readers who might be either in situations where they are seeking, you know, abortions or reproductive care or in communities where that's really, you know, um, shamed. Um, so we, we did feel strongly that this was something we still wanted to pursue. So we had to have a conversation about like, okay, what does this mean for right now? Are we going to pull submissions? Are we going to kind of wait things out or are we going to kind of submit and like really try to find someone who can uh, connect with this and
0: also be a champion
2: for it? And so I thought was ultimately what we, what we decided on.
0: I think it was a great example of raising the stakes in like tiny notches. It struck me that this is a book that it's pretty contained. You know, it's contained via its setting, via the people in it, via, you know, the situation. But then you have the one with the grandparents, who are very religious, crank a notch. You have her friend groups be from the youth group, even though there's probably other kids in this community, crank up a notch. You know, you have being the new kid, crank up a notch there's all these tiny little things that you did that just added pieces of tension everywhere. So you have your main tension, but there's all these little micro tensions, you know, her and her mom are sharing the same room. How does that make mom feel? Mm -hmm. You know, how does that make her feel as a young girl having this, you know, there's just tons of that. Did you do that on purpose? Was, Was that something that you really, you know, looked at or did you just pants Did that just come right, right from the pants?
2: I do think that was
0: a little more intentional,
2: especially thinking about it as a retelling of The Scarlet Letter, um, which I think, like, ties into that really well in terms of, you know, you have the big tension of this, you know, adulterous relationship. But again, like, it's an insular community. Esther Prynne has kind of gotten the boat over from England. Like, her husband is supposedly dead, but actually not. So all those little kind of notches get turned up in this very insular community. So I think that even though it's a very, like, this is a very light retelling, I think those were kind of things that I wanted to pull in terms of like, just twisting the the knobs in all the surrounding areas.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because you could have made her lose everything at once. And then we wouldn't have had mm. a story. But because you slowly space it out and it's almost like we watch this chain reaction grow and grow, it makes it so much more painful, but also it makes it have the tension that keeps the story moving. Just the, the way that she loses, you know, first her friends and then her community and then the adults know and then her grandparents kick her out. So she loses her house and then she loses her relationship. And then, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Mm. If all of, if she'd lost all of that in one fell asleep, Where would the other 200 pages go? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And at least like that does happen in like a compressed time frame where it's like within, you know, that first week or so. But yeah, it's like over several pages. So it's like these steady falls until she is like much more isolated and kind of ends up relying instead on music and finds this new group and kind of starts to learn to find her voice again. Did you talk with your team about emotional and aesthetic range? Because
1: one of the things that I think makes this so readable is that, yes, these very difficult things are happening, but there's fun and friendship and typical teen happy stuff too.
2: Yeah. Um, So actually, it was interesting when I had uh, kind of my first marketing meeting, one of the team members mentioned that they had been talking with people at the, I think, Independent Booksellers Association. And he was saying like, oh, the thing that people really responded to was the music room friends and like people really were like oh yeah and I think that was a thing that um you know in uh, people hearing about this they, it was a, a connection for them for a lot of people who are in you know the book world we were probably a lot of like artsy you know music room art room theater group kind of people and I think in in writing the book that was something that I don't think I was like, really consciously putting there but like in, in pantsing being like, okay, I need that kind of levity and these positive voices and for a way that wasn't just going to be like a deep emotional drag on um, Tess. Um, and so she is able to see like a path forward for herself and kind of follow that light as opposed to just again, like drowning in, in everything that she's lost.
1: Could we turn this into, because I feel like a lot of people are talking about difficult issues out there. How do they turn it into A story that will have all of these independent groups saying oh yeah we responded to this other part and it's not you know too painful to read people can still absorb it
2: yeah i mean i think like drawing out the music storyline to it is like a big part of that and i think the fact that it's also a quieter book i i think even though again like there's a lot that tess loses right up front and and even the fact that you know, we get tests going to get an abortion within like the first chapter. I think that getting through that, there's there is still a lot of kind of levity and positive aspects of the book to be found for the readers. Um, and and I feel like that is more similar to to life as well, where you know, you're dealing with any number of things that are very negative, um, you know, really tragic and traumatic, but there are also moments of like of levity and lightness and joy and love and connection to be found there as well. I remember, do you, do you all remember um, A Ring of Endless Light by Madeline Langlois? Yeah, Yeah, that was, I feel like, you know, that was a big mm-hmm. book for me when I was young. And I think that I feel like that book deals with that so much where there's so much of that character dealing with like loss and death, but like the conversations around how do you carry that while also acknowledging like the good things and the joy and the love and not like discounting one in favor of the other, but being able to hold both at the same time. Mm. And I think that's the kind of approach that I want to have in fiction that deals with like really serious, heavy issues, but also offers that joy and hope.
1: It's interesting that you talk about this as a quiet book, because I wouldn't have thought of the finished oh, product that way. But yeah, I actually, when I was looking for the information for this meeting, where to join in everything, I found an email from you from 2020 asking us about quiet books.
0: Oh, man. Really? That's so yes. funny. <laughs> I don't even remember that. Oh, the, the darn pandemic.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> I know that was everything out of my brain in that year. Right. Oh, oh my goodness.
1: gosh, read it. How, how can writers with quote-unquote quiet novels work oh. on their book, both in the pitch and the manuscript itself? Oh, well, I good. would say you certainly answered that question and worked it out because
0: your book has a very obvious commercial hook here. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's so funny. Did you have a profound answer to the email? Uh, I'm sure I would give that to Probably her not. Oh, I said <laughs> that's a great question, Annie. Thank you. See you tonight. Oh, that's so funny. Oh. Oh, well, man. I think it's interesting because I mean- In some ways, I think this is a quiet book because it's a lot of personal tension, you know, but there's also Alden, and I think he represents Mm -hmm. more than Alden. Mm -hmm. You know, he represents an institution, Mm -hmm. the church, and like that that can be a dangerous place to go. You went there, Mm -hmm. and so tell us how you decided to, to, you know, use that as a part of your plot and, Mm -hmm. you know, how you handled that in a way that... He felt dangerous, but he also felt yeah. conflicted too, you know? Yeah. So I think
2: that was something that again really tied back for me to the Scarlet Letter and reading it in high school. Like, I remember being so mad because I was like, Hester Prynne mm-hmm. is like shouldering this giant burden. Mm-hmm. Arthur Dimsdale over here is just like done with his life. He's like, oh, I feel really bad about it, but oh, I'm not going to say anything. Like, oh, my guilt, and like everyone's like, oh my God, you're such a godly man. You're leading our community. You're so wonderful. So I was carrying that around for a while and thinking about like the kind of the differences of power and especially in like a very religious community. And so kind of in in writing this book, um, like a complicated story in which you know he is someone who t- Tess sees as very safe. You know, he's the the youth group leader and he he seems to be listening to her um and the youth group and faith in general is something that Teth really responds to and is positive for her in many ways it's not just like this terrible place that you know takes advantage of her and everyone is awful so i think it was something that like you said you know represents so much of this you know these abuses of power guys who you know take these roles to get access to young people um and especially in a way that you know, young women might think that they are in a consensual relationship and they're really not. And so I think he, you know, kind of was standing in for all of that, but also surrounded by other good things where, you know, Tess throughout the novel, like really, you know, feels connection to faith and to God. And she is not kind of put off by this like truly terrible experience that she has. She wants to kind of reclaim her faith. So I think both in terms of looking at it as like, Alden as, you know, someone who is like a truly awful person and a stand-in for, you know, many people who abuse power in, you know, whether it is faith settings, school settings, athletic settings, but also as someone who is part of a complex community dynamic.
1: Well, it's interesting because you set up this community that is so warm, so helpful, so loving, but it's all so conditional. Mm -hmm. And it's everything she needs for a little while. And then it's Uh, everything that tries to destroy her after that. And I
2: think she's someone who comes in and she is like, unquote, nice girl. Like she is very helpful. You know, she doesn't have like her mom was someone who when she was a teenager was like, you know, getting into trouble and you know butting heads with her with the grandparents. Um whereas Tess is looking for that kind of nice group of friends who wants to go to movies and mini golf and kind of do kind of like volunteer work together. So I think she she fits in very well at first with this very conditional friendship. And I think her like many of her friends turn on her quickly and seeing that like, oh, they think she's not who they thought she was, um, and assume like, oh, you did this thing that means you're bad versus You did this thing that something happened to you and you had to make this decision and it does end up being the right decision for you. And, you know, part of the book is not only test learning for her to be able to stand up for herself and kind of learning the complexities that she has. It's not, you know, not just thinking there's either like a nice girl or a not nice girl. Um, But then also people in her community seeing that this, her situation was more complex and maybe everybody's situation is complex.
1: So Annie, tell us about Content warnings and
2: how they factored in here. So obviously some very heavy issues in this book and people have, you know, various traumatic experiences with them. So even from when my agent and I were going to be on submission, we talked about including a content warning you know sending kind of the pitch to editors and you know we did that you know mentioning that it covered the book deals with abortion and grooming and sexual assault so that you know the editors could see that and think you know maybe this isn't something they want to engage with or you know even just being able to go into it knowing that was going to be kind of the the topics that they would be reading about and i think in in the book and the kind of the marketing for it you know it's been something where it's not like put immediately out but it is something that like in the summary gets mentioned and you know I talk about in my author's notes and in the resources we share so I think especially now I actually really appreciate having content warnings I think it's good for readers and you know can really frame a, a reading experience in a very safe supportive way where you know even as you deal with them uncomfortable topics or something that might be difficult. I know I appreciate having a heads up about that. So I think it's really helpful for readers. And again, like in the submission process. Um, so if you're if your book is kind of dealing with something like that, it might be something to consider, um, whether again, in the query in the submission or um, kind of in the summary.
1: Yeah, I think just even a quick content warning list of topics. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Like as a reader, I think that's so helpful. And weirdly, I feel like that is something that fan fiction has done like way more than, yeah. Like I feel like I have seen that in kind of fan fiction spheres, like way before it started being a conversation in like traditional publishing. So yeah, I think it's a very good
0: move. Good. Thank you. You have a lens and you use it really well, like the writing lens. So at first, you know, the lens is, oh, everything, you know, well, I mean, we start with this, this kind of, you know, obviously a traumatic experience for young girl, especially with, you know, the people there and everything else. But the lens, as it's looking at Alden, as it's looking at the kids, it's looking at the other girls in the program, use the lens really slowly and efficiently to bring us to understanding about the other girls there and the lens gets bigger as we, you know, in this world, as we go mm-hmm. through it. And I think that is such a tool that writers use. And you, once again, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but like when you expanded the, the lens towards the end, I'm not going to give the mm-hmm. end away, but I was like, there it is. Like it, it just mm-hmm. like, once the lens was expanded for me, it mm-hmm. had everything that I wanted in it. It had redemption, female to female, communication it had like who is really godly mm-hmm. <laughs> like this character that that is treated so poorly is really the the most thoughtful or the most so i mean just by pulling it out a little bit i thought that was perfect oh
2: thank you um i feel that that is something that i i definitely wanted to i like it's i like those kind of books anyway Mm. and so i definitely wanted that to be this kind of story and i think it's also something that like for me again, connected with the scarlet letter where like hester Prynne wears her a for adultery but like throughout the course of the book like over many years people come to see a as like able and they're like Mm. oh maybe she's not so bad like She's actually pretty cool. We shouldn't have been shunning her for like 10 years.
0: Um, Those Puritans. I know,
2: right? Oh, but yeah, it was the kind of thing where I was like, oh, I, I do want that, kind of that transformation um, in this and to be able to like have uh, a character that like finds her own strength, but also is able to turn it outward. So one
1: of the things that I ended up finding on the internet, because it seems like the internet knows what you're reading and gives you (laughs) supporting documents. (laughs) Um, One thing I found that I found really upsetting is that apparently there are a lot more pregnant teenage girls than there are teenage boys who get them pregnant because somewhere between 24 and 40% of those pregnancies are caused by men over 20. And yet we still talk about it as a problem of, oh, these teenage girls. Yeah, right. And I think that One thing you do really brilliantly here is that you show that he almost has a script. He has a way of manipulating her that repeats and repeats and repeats. Mm -hmm. And she's too young to know all of that. And I actually think that one of the best things we can do to help arm these young women against all of this is Mm -hmm. show them that manipulation often does have a script Mm -hmm. and show them through Mm -hmm. story how it works. Can you talk more about that?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I completely believe that statistic. And I think it is something that people who are, you know, like Alden, they're so crafty. And that again, that like, it sounds very particular. It's like, you're very special. You're mature. You know, they seem like they're really connecting with you when really it's something that like they're tweaking to say to any girl that they think is going to um, be, be vulnerable to them. And I think that, you know, in... In situations like these that, you know, relationships that are abusive, they don't even feel abusive to these young girls until later Um, because they think, again, it's very special to them. Um, And I think that that, again, was something that I wanted to, like, portray and kind of show the growth of in throughout the novel from Tess thinking, like, I am in a relationship with this person and we can't talk about it because, you know, we kind of have to keep it secret, but it's like a cool secret versus something that she sees. Throughout as being um, disingenuous. And not only was um, Alden not being kind of genuine to her, but also this is again something that he has done to other girls and is continuing to do to other girls. And she, like, she really can't sit by at that point.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of the responsibility of YA in the next 10 years is going to be teaching through story. All the things that we wish we could just give a bullet pointed list and be like, here are the yeah. things you shouldn't <laughs> fall for.
0: But I would both so much better. Same thing, Jessica, because these are the conversations that we should be having in schools. These are conversations yeah. that a kid should read this book and go to her mother or go to her girlfriends and say, you know, I don't know. This isn't like it seems like this person's just being nice. Yeah. they are just being nice. There's being there's nothing going on. There's just, mm-hmm. oh, it's not just being nice, but. But, but by highlighting them, these conversations, it can save, you can save kids with this book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And yeah.
2: like, I, I feel weird saying, you know, like, oh, that, that was like, I want to like hand out pamphlets to to people. But also like, I think when I was growing up, so much of the conversation around sexual assault was like, you know, being careful at parties, like cover your drink, don't accept a, you know, an um, unopened beverage from someone versus you might see a nice guy and he would say things that made you feel special. And like, oh, he's a little older. Like, well, you feel very mature. Like it's something that I never heard of as a young person. And especially as a young person who felt that like a lot of the guys in high school were just real toofs. and I didn't want to really date any of them, but there was no conversation around like, oh, if, someone is older and pursuing you, it might feel very special, but it's completely different to be a teenager and a 20 something person, even though you feel like you're very close in age, you're really not. And I think it's something that a lot of young people like they don't hear in general. And it's so easy to be in the moment and to hear what, you know, someone is grooming you to say, and they're saying all the things that you might want to hear. So I do hope that, you know, readers can see this and um, kind of start to pick up on that messaging so they can be a little more savvy when older people are being real creeps.
1: Yeah. And it's also like, okay, at my school, we spent six months on that stupid unit circle in trig, never used it, yeah. still don't understand it. <laughs> Not have spent a
2: day on red flags and relationships. Yeah. I feel like I remember in middle school, I don't even remember what the guys were doing. But like my my science teacher was a woman. And we had like my little group of girls in science class. And we were talking about various things like, you know, eating disorders, and like friend group dynamics. And it was like a very casual conversation, but like dealing with real issues. And I'm like, I can think back to that so clearly and how like it was, I was not a popular kid, but it was like the the popular kids had the same issues too. And like, it felt very, um, like we were, it was very bonding for everyone. And again, like, I don't remember the science we were actually doing that year. And I think those conversations can be so important for young people. Um, and I think like having a book that deals with this kind of thing is a good, like impetus for that conversation, um, versus just like. Going up to someone and saying, like, oh, hey, I've been thinking about um, how older guys are trying to groom young women. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Like, it's a lot easier to have a conversation about a fictional character and a fictional story.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because we talk about gossip as a bad thing, and yet it's conversation between women that often keeps them safe. And it's ah. conversations that often move the needle forward because it's more complicated than any pamphlet can ever tell you. Yeah. It's yeah, not bullet points, it's a story.
2: Yeah. And I feel like that's like the difference between like what we call gossip and like the whisper network and being able to like share information with other people in a way that is meant to like keep people safe, but also feels uncomfortable to talk about. And again, like it's helpful to have like either, you know, a book, a movie, like a play, something that you can reference in a very quick and easy way, but also connect very easily with your own life.
1: Well, and if we call it gossip, then we have suddenly kicked out the moral necessity Yeah. Of doing something about it.
2: Yeah. Um, and I think when you even when you say gossip, it sounds like, oh, it's the thing that teen girls do. And it's so dismissive and reductive instead of like allowing, especially again like teen girls to have these kind of conversations.
0: I'm wondering, there is um Lori Halsey Anderson after speak, she had all the letters of people coming into her and the letters about all the girls that read Speak, and um, she turned it into a poem that I used to share with Mm -hmm. my students when I taught at the college. I'm wondering, are you prepared to hear from your readers? With my first book that
2: dealt with um, mental health in the family, and I think that was something that I didn't expect at the time to get response for people who had like family experience with that or personal experience so I feel like this time around I feel a little more savvy about that and knowing that that readers could respond to this in a very personal way and like wanting to be like I'm not a counselor I'm not a therapist but to be like someone who is um seen as as supportive of those conversations and you know in the book we have kind of an author's note with resources listed um so like also being able to help guide people to professional resources, but like being aware of them, like, oh, this is the kind of thing that people do want to talk about. And I think, like, you know, like we were saying, like they're, you're not in high school having a conversation about like grooming or like reproductive rights, um, but it's something that you might be thinking about and you, you need to have an opening for. Um, and like I've done that as a reader where like if I've read a book that is like, really hit me in a very deeply personal way. Like I've sent authors like emails to be like, Hey, this touched me in this very specific personal way. Like, don't feel like you have to respond, but I just wanted to let you know that this meant something to me. And sometimes people respond, which is really nice. Um, so I think like both knowing that, like I do that as a reader and then seeing the reaction to my first book, like makes me, um, at least more prepared this time around.
1: Did you happen to learn through this process the best ways that someone can receive information like this when the conversation comes up and be a safe place for it so they don't end up feeling shut down.
2: Can you say more to that in terms of?
1: Well, there are so many people out there who are maybe thinking about tough conversations they've had friends bring up or things they would Mm -hmm. like to talk to their friends about. Mm -hmm. And I do think that conversation is probably the means through which this is eventually going to get better, do you have any tips for people who are suddenly having these harder conversations?
2: Yeah, I, I think it really helps if you're kind of nervous about the conversation um to it and again, like reference again, a book, a movie, and like reference like I find it very helpful to reference like a fictional world. And I think to, oh Guy, my colleague mentioned recently like listening to learn and not to respond and to to go into conversations like that with the intent more to learn than to, like change someone's mind or get a particular outcome to come with that kind of openness, you know, whether you are on a side of someone who, you know, is like has kind of heard things in a particular way all your life and maybe hasn't, you know, had more kind of nuance about a particular topic or someone who maybe has experienced something that they feel very sensitive about and want to talk about to kind of go into it with, with the good intent of the conversation and to be supportive as a listener and as a speaker.
1: Can you talk about some of the supportive conversations you had editorially along the way? Because I imagine some people were like, this is amazing. This is going to change the world. Can you
2: oh, give us okay. a lens into how that? So I think for like, even starting off with my my agent, when I was like starting to work on this book, when I sent her kind of the initial pages and the idea, she was super supportive. And she is someone who Like is both someone who like, you know, goes to church, but also super feminist. And so we had a lot of conversations about the content of the book and dealing with things in a very sensitive way. Kind of in the editorial process, one thing that I talked to my editor about was like what Tess's choices are at the end of the story around her response to Alden and kind of teaming up with other victims. Um, And in looking at um, kind of what would be like the likely outcome for a situation like this, which is not super great most of the time, but also kind of wanting to frame things in a, in a very active and very hopeful way. So we, um, yeah, we're, it was something where we're like, okay, what can we find that still feels very realistic, but also something that we can approach in a way that is supportive and, um, and feels connected to Tess's journey. Can, can we give away a book, Jessica? Yeah, book. of
1: course. Mm-hmm. Annie, do you have a code word that we can throw somewhere in the episode? Ooh,
2: um, oh, that's a really good one.
1: Let's say
0: guitar. Guitar.
1: Ooh. Okay. So the first writer to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with guitar in the subject line will receive a copy of
2: Annie's book. Hey, okay, thank you.
0: Yay. So did you feel exhausted when you finished this book? Did you feel <laughs> elated? I mean, it's a big topic, right? Like, like. Do you have like? Do you have a topic you're gonna hit next? Like, how, like where do you go from here, Annie? <laughs> so, so weirdly, like I like and finished this book,
2: and I had written like three other manuscripts between my first book and this. So I think even though I was like, oh, this is big, and I like, I was really connected to it, and it felt. Like kind of a next step in my writing. It was also still not something where I was like, oh, now it's going to go out in the world immediately. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen with this. Like I'm going to send it to my agent and like, we're going to like, you know, revise and then go on submission with it. But it wasn't necessarily like, I was like, oh man, like now it's going to take its step in the world. It was still very much like, well, we'll see how it goes. So, so yeah, I feel like in a way it wasn't like quite as exhausting just because I'm like, well, it could have just been on my computer forever.
0: I love that and, attitude. Like, yeah. Dang, I don't know. Yeah. One out. So I I,
2: I was starting to work on another book recently and I was like, not, re- you know, it's a real major revision of something I had worked on in the past and it just wasn't jiving. Um, and I got another idea that I was like, oh, like I've been really excited about. And it's again, like very like big, emotional, dark themes, but it tends to be my, like my interest for writing and real my jam. Like, oh, what if we made a book sad and traumatic?
0: Like, oh my gosh. Well, wouldn't so that be fun because- to work on? <laughs> if I know correctly, like, so your first book was before you had your kids. And now that you have kids, do you find that your attitude's different now that you have these littles in the house? And, you know, does it make that process different for you? Like, if anything, I definitely feel
2: more, like, more emotionally invested (laughs) in, like, in a good way. And I think, you know, especially, like, with Red, I was writing it, like, throughout, like, the, the pregnancies and births of both children. Um, And it was something that I was like, like, especially now as a parent, being able to think of like my child in that situation, it just like, again, like for me raises the personal stakes and and, like, wanting to come at this story in, in a supportive and, like, thoughtful way. And then, you know, for what I'm working on now in a similar way, we're thinking of, like, this, like, um, traumatic family situation. And, again, wanting to approach it in a way that that is very supportive of young voices and, you know, feels, like, realistic, but also brings, like, a nuance and a, and a depth to that. So, yeah, I feel like that, it like, weirdly, I'm, like, more jazzed about that kind of thing now.
1: Annie, I know that you have learned so much in this process. And what is something you wish you had known going in as a writer?
2: I remember like years ago, someone saying to me, like, if you, the longer you keep writing, the more likely it is that everything will happen to you. Where like, you're going to get on, like a start review. You're going to get on the New York Times bestseller list. You're going to get dropped by your agent. You're going to have like an option book rejected. And I feel like going in, it I wish I had known that, like there there's just a flow and it's not like, okay, this one thing happens, your career is over or you know, oh, this thing happened, you know, you' got a good thing and it's going to happen forever and now you have to keep going to that standard all the time. um that it's part of the business. and you know, this is something that you, You don't necessarily need to feel like, oh, either I need to keep going to a particular standard or things will fall apart or one bad things happen to me. Or, you know, I feel like I've seen people like get freaked out if they have a query and there's like a misspelling in there and it's like, oh God, I just sent this. And now this agent is going to see that I misspelled a word. They're going to reject me immediately. And it's like, it's okay. It's going to be fine. So yeah, having that kind of balanced approach to, to writing and publishing and know that like it is all part of the process.
1: Yeah, so many writers seem to feel like if they have one tiny comma out of place, suddenly everyone's going to know how much they yeah. don't
2: know. Yeah. When it's like, no, I have commas out of place all the time, every day, everywhere. And like, so do agents and editors. And it's all fine. We're all people. Well, it's a human are business.
0: You... Humans are running the business, but then we're humans going through our human lives that yeah. that can that can that can make the art ebb and flow too, which yeah. is- something to deal with. You know, like sometimes you're just going through periods where everything's just so rocky that you can kind of hold on to the writing, but it's just not the same. And then you have those yeah. nice times where you can kind of like really dive in. And I think it's really, really important to consider as you're embarking on this career.
1: What else did you learn? Or like, is there anything that you can impart to our listeners as like, you should do it this way, not this way, or here's how you do blank?
2: I think so. From the pure writing standpoint, for me, like showing up is half the battle, Um, especially now with like, I have a day job, I have kids, we have a dog, like any like little writing time I can squeak out, like makes a difference. And it like can kind of build on each other where, you know, my, my husband's a playwright. So we'll often like, we'll do our normal work days and then kids and dinner and bedtime. And then like by eight thirty nine o'clock, now it's our time to write (laughs) and for like half an hour to an hour. And Like that that does add up and it feels like it's not much, especially when you can think about like, oh, people who have, you know, many other resources and, you know, write full time, but just like being able to kind of squeak out that little bit of time and it keeps you moving. Um, I remember, I think it was a professor at some point saying that like you live differently when you're like, I think she was saying you live differently when you're submitting, but I tend to think of that also like when I'm like writing in like, what I would consider a professional capacity, even if, like, a book hasn't sold yet, but, like, coming at it with that kind of commitment where it's, like, okay, I'm kind of bringing the intention to the page and, like, giving myself that time to focus, even if it's, again, like, for, like, half an hour, which feels like it's not going to add up to much, but it does. Yeah,
1: it'll certainly add up to more than half an hour on TikTok.
2: Yeah, right? (laughs) I can definitely sink half an hour into TikTok though.
1: (laughs) What else? I mean, I just, sorry, I know I keep poking around in this, but like- Oh, no. What other, yeah, what else What else have
2: you learned that could be helpful out there? Um, I had a very good relationship with my first agent, but it ended up being that like, we weren't jiving about what projects I should be working on. And for me, it was like, I have a wonderful writing group and I would like go to them and be like, oh my God, I don't know. Like, she thinks I should be working on this. I really am not feeling it. I should be, I want to be working on this other thing. And being worried about like, leaving an agent and like having to make that decision of like okay we're going to part ways and worrying that it's like that I was going to be kind of adrift and like back to my starting point when also that's not really the case so i think for me like going through that experience was really positive in that even though i was like really angsting about it and like i i like had my email draft to be like oh my god i'm going to tell her that I'm, that we should part ways and that i'm so stressed but it ended up being the right thing for me because I was able to learn what I wanted from an agent, kind of what books I really wanted to be working on. And, you know, I went back to to querying and, you know, even though like it took several months, but I like found an agent who really like is enthusiastic and, you know, she's very communicative and we do brainstorming. And I feel like that seemed like a very scary experience, but like going through the the whole process. I'm so much better off where I am now. And I think that a lot of writers feel like, oh, if I like made it to the phase of like, oh, I got an agent that like, if you decide to part ways because something isn't working, that it's like, oh, now you're taking a step back. When it's like, no, you are still moving along forward in your career and you've learned more things now. And maybe that agent wasn't right for you based on communication styles or, you know, what their priorities were for your career or, you know, any number of things that don't have anything to do with your actual writing. Um, but I think can be a very scary thing if you're a writer in that situation.
1: Yeah, I, I was going to say that must have been absolutely terrifying to take that leap and then to know that for months you didn't know where you're going to land. That must have been so yeah. scary. Oh, definitely.
2: Because I was like, oh, my God, like, what if this was a wrong decision? like what if just no one's going to want me anymore? And, and I think even then, like, it was helpful to know that it was like, okay, the previous relationship wasn't working anymore. And it was also really helpful, helpful for me to have writer friends at that point, because I knew other people who had left their agents. So I like emailed people and I was like, Hey, I remember you left your agent. you know, why exactly did that happen? And like, people like shared their breakup emails with me to be like, Hey, this is what I said. Like, you know in a way that was it wasn't any like personal information but it was just like here like here's like a nice professional way to say it because you're not like oh someone who like stole my money and i'm like need to like get away from them it's like this other agent was still very nice but it just wasn't working anymore so it was very gratifying to hear from these other writers who had been through it and like then went on to get other agents and sell other books and it's like oh, okay like It's again, like the things you don't talk about in publishing, where people are just posting like, oh, I got a new agent. I'm so excited. I sold a book. I'm so excited. Like people aren't posting about my agent and I parted ways. I'm querying again and terrified. But it happens all the time. And then later, I was able to like share my breakup letter (laughs) with other people to be like, "Oh, hey, this is the kind of thing I said, you know, like, Here, you know, here's like the nice way to phrase it and like even the way to title your email because I was freaking out about that and like other people didn't know what to say. So it was really helpful to have like a community of writers that I could be in contact with about something like this.
1: Well, and so much of this is relationships, right? And so much of relationships you have to process with other people because you're going to have that like, am I crazy? I don't know. What do you think writers? How'd it go for you? Kind of like in any relationship in our world is so
2: relationship based. You're
1: generally not going to know
2: everything in isolation. Yeah, exactly. And especially when all you're seeing is like the very positive stuff. And you think like, oh, everybody else is having like getting book deals, getting agents, getting movie deals, like all these great things. So it can feel so isolating if you're on the side of, oh, I'm gonna take this step that I think is kind of scary and I don't know how it's gonna turn out. And it feels like a step back. So yeah, it's so helpful to to like get to know other writers and like develop these relationships. And even in querying again, like I even if I didn't know like agents personally, like I knew them from Twitter. And so people would like see my query and be like, oh hey, like nice to see you. And so it it felt more positive going in on that side where it's like I had kind of developed a network um where people knew me as like a nice reasonable person. Um <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that it it felt a little better knowing that too. And it it didn't feel like just like taking a step back, even though I was so afraid to like part ways and kind of go back to querying.
0: I think one of the things that um that, that writing and publishing is, is a huge mix of eyes on your own paper and be everyone's cheerleader. Yeah. Like it, it's, it, it's, you know, like those relationships are so important, but it's also really important just to look down. What do I have to do next? Oh, I have to yeah. send out a query. I need to write another page. I need to, yeah. like, it's because if not, it is overwhelming. Oh, definitely.
2: And as a, you're the only one who's going to get your work done. But at the same time, like, A, it's really nice to cheer for other people. Like. My favorite day of the year is the Boston Marathon because you get to go and, like, cheer for strangers. Like, it's the best thing ever. So I feel like writing is like that, too, where, like, maybe they're not strangers, but you're like, oh, someone's book is coming out. Someone got a really good review. Like, you can, like, pump up your friends. And those are, again, going to be the people who were, like, maybe you're like, oh, hey, I'm going to send you a text because I lost my editor like they left the business and now I'm freaking out like I know you went through something like that and just being able to have those people that you can connect with when like times are tough or you just need to vent so yeah it's so much of it is like is developing those connections and I know especially like with the, can, like literally 10 years between books coming out for so long I was like oh my god I'm falling behind all these other people have multiple books out they've had movies they've had wonderful you know accolades. You know, who cares about me anymore? But people were so excited when I got the deal announcement for red. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. Like these people are still friends. And like, even though, of course, like no one had ever sent anything mean or acted like I was nothing, like they're all so wonderful. But like it was so easy for me to feel like, oh, I've just completely fallen behind. Um, with this like span of 10 years when when again, you sounded like, a, like <laughs> <said laughs> a little right. bit like Tess there. You sound a little bit like Tess. There we go. It's that emotional connection. Uh, But yeah,
1: when you you build a community, like it's, it stays there. This almost makes me want us, makes me wish that we could have a library of, I've been through blank, ask me about this.
2: Right? Because again, like all you see is like, oh, this person has an agent and you don't know that it's like, actually it's their third agent because like someone else decided to be an editor and someone else, you know, like their, their agent wasn't emailing them for like months at a time. So they had to break up. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like I've heard that one too. Like. People like basically going MIA. Wow. I know,
1: right? Well, but that's the sort of thing that you would only know from people, you know, telling about this in a narrative way. Yeah. And
2: it's so like refreshing to hear from people being open about things. And again, like it was so wonderful when I was like, okay, I need to break up with my original agent um, that like other people were like, Hey, it's okay. Like I've been through it. Here's what I said. Here's probably how she's going to respond because she's a professional person. And like, and of course, again, like my agent was like, Oh yeah, I totally understand. Here's the language we need to part ways. And, um, but like going into it, I was so terrified. And so it was really nice to hear from people who like could had been through it and could talk me through it, even though it wasn't something that you're going to like advertise on Instagram.
1: Were you afraid that she's going to be like, and you'll never work in this town again?
2: I I feel like it was, it wasn't even something that I was like, oh my, like, she's not like a vindictive person, but I was just like, oh my God, like, are we going to get into an argument about this? Like, oh no, like you not, like you can't break up with me or you have to do something where I'm like. Like, logically, I knew that it was like, oh, we we had had a conversation and we're like, oh, we have different priorities about what I should be working on. So I was like, I'm sure she's not going to be super surprised. But yeah, I was just this anxiety of like, oh, I'm going to like get in a fight with someone about our professional careers when, of course, that wasn't the case at all.
1: And also, we don't see it as a red flag if you worked with somebody else. We know that not everyone's going to line up on the hundreds of ways you have to line up to be a good fit with your agent.
2: Actually, I was just talking about this with another friend who very recently parted ways with their agent, and they were saying that, again, like returning to querying can feel like very overwhelming at first and feeling like, oh, it's a step back. But in your query, you're seeking new representation. And so it's like, oh, you, you know, someone has seen that you, your stories are are strong and, you know, could be published. Um So I feel like there's, you know, kind of that upside where it's like, okay, this again feels very scary. But if you're a a writer who, you know, it's again, like really kind of working on their craft and is like a polite, good literary citizen, then agents are going to see that.
1: Do you have a few quick bullet points on how to be a good literary
2: citizen? Definitely, again, like pumping up your fellow writers. Like I, you know, on Instagram or something, if I see someone has like a good review post or, you know, they they won an award or something, I'll like put it in my stories. So yeah, like reading other people's books um, and talking about them. In terms of like querying, like reading people's like submission requirements, like being polite and like responding in a nice normal way in the in the query. I feel like, you know, like people get very worried about like, is my query perfect? Like, do I have like the lines crafted exactly right? When it's, it's very easy to remember that like other people are just emailing any old random agent mm-hmm. and saying like, here's my book. It's going to be the next Harry Potter meets James Patterson meets Star Wars. You're going to buy it or else. And I'm like, oh, those people are not at all good literary citizens. So like, if you're just emailing me like, hey, you know, here's my query. Here's my 10 pages as requested. Like, let me know if you want more. Like. That's all you need to do. Um, yeah, I feel like those are those are my two big things, like follow people's <laughs> directions in general. And oh, and like saying please and thank you. Like, and now I'm working with my editor and the marketing team. Like, I, I'm just so excited to have a marketing team. They're delightful. And so if they ask me for something and they'll say like, oh, you know, is is this deadline okay? Does that seem reasonable? I'm like, oh yeah, thank you so much. So like, like responding to people in a way that you'd want to be treated on the other side of the desk. And like having done like some work in publishing and like, you know, like textbook publishing and nothing fancy, um, you know, it's, when people are nice to like assistants, you know, it really says something. And, you know, having been an assistant, like it made a difference for me where I'm like, oh, this person was so polite and I wanted to help them versus people who are just like really rude and don't care about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like being rude to the receptionist. I'm like, if yeah, you are rude the right up front, I, I do. Oh, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. I you know it's such you a walk in there and you be polite small world. And it's just the way, you know, the way you put your feet out in front of you every day as a writer and what you're putting on Twitter and how how your talk speaking of the world is really important. Such like such a delightful end to this conversation. I am just thrilled. Annie, where can we find you online? Um, So I am found on
2: AnnieCardy.com and most social media platforms as Annie Um, So if you Google that, that's probably it's you're either going to find me Or sweaters um, (laughs) that are anti-cardigans. So, you know, either one is going to be good. Yeah. Well, I am pro-cardigan, as you can see. They're so great. So uh, so either way, you're going to find something good.
1: I was wondering if in a couple months we could check back in with you and hear how it goes with your correspondence after this book comes out.
2: Oh, that would be great. Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah. This is going to be an important book, and I hope you get you. only nice letters about people appreciating thank it. You. Um, you'll probably get a few that are like, how dare you
2: encourage yeah. teenage
1: girls? We hate you.
2: I know. And um, I mean, I know, like, in going into um the um editorial process, I, I had a conversation with my agent where she was like, you know, I was talking with your editor, and we were both saying, like, you should expect to be banned or challenged as opposed Mm -hmm. to thinking that it might happen um yeah. So I think that again, like kind of thinking about like the responses, that is something
0: I would go into it, like right. kind because of it's, expecting. It's ungodly to show what could really happen oh, yeah. in a place of worship.
2: <laughs> and I think like what we've seen from so many like bands and challenges, people just see the summary or someone else tells them something about mm-hmm. it and they never actually read the book. They just want to get it out yeah. of the hands of readers. Mm, crazy. Um, like thinking about like like wonderful books that I have read that like have had like really like scary reactions to them. Um, you know, it's it's so upsetting for the author. Um, but I'm like, I love those books so much and I'm so glad that they're in the world. So I'm kind of trying to take that into this process.
1: I wonder if we'll get to a point as a society where if you're not getting hate mail and you're not getting
2: banned, you haven't been brave enough. Yeah,
0: that first page is very brave. Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like it's something where I'm like definitely nervous about that kind of response, but also thinking, I'm like, oh, I would, this isn't something that I would like not want to share with someone else. Like no matter kind of their beliefs, I'm like, oh no, this is still very important to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully feeling, feeling brave as this goes on. It's so sad that it's brave to talk about something that is factually common. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I remember being like a preteen and watching Dirty Dancing and like Asking my mom about like the, like a pennies <laughs> abortion plot line and that. And I was like, why does baby have to lie to her dad to get this and money? And also, can I go out like, with
0: a guy that's like 40 years old? <laughs> I don't know, right? 40 years old. Uh, but I was like, oh, this is
2: something where I was like, this was such a formative experience for me, like as a young viewer. And again, like, it was like, that was a part of life at that point. And I think like, like hoping that, you know, this book is similar and that like people can of take that and think like oh this is happening mm-hmm. this is a not only like a situation for you know teen girls but also like people of like many different ages backgrounds life situations and there's so much nuance to it and we should be able to provide like safety and care for people
1: yeah i think that nuance is the way forward but we often need longer form content
0: well, hopefully for it's that. a pendulum it's yeah. swinging back you know so at least no. Hopefully. you <laughs> I mean, like kids yeah, attend right.
2: these days. They can't with TikTok. They need those 500-page books. <laughs> there oh, we go. W, well, it's kind of like how a couple of years ago, um, sea shanties came back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have like, like really thick tomes come back.
1: <laughs> I so hope funny. so. Stopping oh, a lot of doors. Gosh. Thank you Start so in. much, Annie. Thank I'm so you. happy for
2: you. Thank
1: I'm so you. happy this book exists. I'm so happy publishing supported you. I'm oh, so happy you. that you are about to...
2: Really just
1: do the responsible thing here and leave the next generation better than you found it.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Hey, and yeah, we will see you guys again soon. All right, We
1: appreciate you. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Bye.
0: We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform.
1: We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our First Pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with
0: First Pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.